This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. for Holy Communion, and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our sermon today comes from 1 Peter, our epistle lesson. Uh, I backed it up a verse to that, uh, verse, uh, verse 18 uh, through verse 25. For to this you have been called, Paul writes. It's no surprise as we look through history about and see the trail of blood, as some have called it, in the Christian faith. Since the time of Rome and before, just prior before, Christians have been suffering for their faith in many areas of the world. We look at Rome, as I said, for instance, we remember those who were lit on fire to help light up Nero's parties in the evening. We think of the Christians that were sent to the Colosseum to die at the hands of animals. We were also, were also told of uh, many false beliefs that we had. For instance, those in Rome thought that Christians engaged in incest because we called each other brother and sister. Uh, they thought that we were cannibals because we referred to the bread and the wine as the, as the blood and the body of Christ. And we were also accused of things such as the burning down of Rome. And as time goes along, of course, that persecution has never ended. Christians have suffered wrongly for who they are rather than for what they have done. We can only think of uh, any time uh, in the Middle East, for instance, when Christians are first baptized into the faith, they, can no, they can't go outside and do it in a river or a pond. They have to do it inside a house for fear of being caught and imprisoned. So as Jesus has told us, we will have trouble in this world. It has come true in many forms and fashions throughout the 2,000 years of the church. And Paul tells us here in 1 Peter that yes, we will be subject to being punished for doing good, as he says. And as we back up to verse 18, and the reason why I wanted to back up to this verse was to point out that the context of the paragraph that we read today for our epistle lesson, Paul is addressing servants. The Greek term for servants in this particular paragraph is meant to be a house servant, or in other words, he's a slave. And he tells us in verse 18, as he addresses these servants, that they need to be subject to their masters with all respect. Now, immediately, this really kind of draw, you know, raises a lot of red flags. Um, in fact, verses such as this were used during the time just prior to our Civil War as proof texts for slaves to obey their masters without question. Now, while servanthood or slavery back in the time of Rome really wasn't anything to uh, be 
uh, something you would want to get into, it was still a lot different than what we know today from American slavery. Servants back then uh, were often treated, uh, so, some were often treated very well as household servants. Uh, they were free to roam about where they would. Um, many servants could buy their freedom, for instance, which is something that can't, couldn't have been done in slavery in the United States. Um, there were a lot more slaves. They were a very big part of the economy at that time. Um, they were so embedded in that economy that it's probably one reason why the apostles didn't really address the evils of slavery as much as we would have liked them to. And as I said, while it may not have been something to aspire to, servants back then were given probably more benefits than what we see today. Um, both in American slavery back around the 18th, 19th century on up to today. So it's not only here that he says or commands these servants to be subservient or to serve their overseers. Uh, he also mentions it in other letters um, as he addresses uh, this idea of the submission of, to authority. And he tells them you're not only supposed to do good for those servants that are kind or gentle, those who treat you well, but you're also supposed to be subject to those who treat you unjustly. And again, there's this something that kind of raises our hackles when we read something like that because it, it kind of invades our sense of justice. We don't like to hear that when we're being treated unjustly that we're to still be subjected to the person that's over us. Paul even goes on to say in verse 19, he says, for this is a gracious thing, meaning it's a thing that finds favor with God. When mindful of God, meaning your attention is to God as you go about your daily duties, that one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, why would he say something like that? Well, I think there's two parts to, the, to that answer. One being, if you go back a previous paragraph, Paul says, in verse 15, as far as submission to authority is concerned, he says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So in a way, when the servant does what he's supposed to do, even though he's being punished for it or he's receiving adverse reaction from his master, that the very act itself is meant to embarrass that person to a degree. That doing good in the face of injustice disarms your opponent. It makes them think twice about why they're doing what they're doing. He goes on to say in verse 20, he says, For what credit is it when you sin, and are, when you, if when you sin you're beaten, that you endure it? It's kind of like saying, you know, why would a child go out and be proud of the fact that he got spanked after he got in trouble? Uh, some kids actually are proud of that. I remember that in junior high, as a matter of fact. But the fact is, is that the servants aren't to take this idea of punishment to the point where every time they're punished, they think that they're being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Uh, that wasn't the case. Even today, we find people that uh, many years ago, for instance, we had folks who were trying to bomb abortion clinics, and they thought that they were doing God's will. 
But what they didn't realize is that they were taking life at the very, you know, at the same time while they were trying to prevent them from taking the life of a child. So two wrongs in that case don't make a right, and their punishment was just. But he goes on to say in verse 21, if you do suffer, or if when you do good and suffer, for it, if you do endure, this is a gracious thing and the sign of God. So again, he repeats this idea that doing good in the face of injustice is something that the Christian needs to keep in mind. He says in verse 21, and this is where really the crux of the whole paragraph turns around. He says, for to this you have been called. And he goes on to state why that's the case. He says, it's because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. So the suffering that Christians suffer for doing good isn't an end into itself. It's supposed to picture something bigger. Paul does something similar with these types of illustrations. If you look back in Ephesians, he takes the everyday ceremony of marriage and of husband and wife and he kind of blows that picture up a little and he says that it's some, it signifies something bigger than itself. It's actually a, a picture of what the church's relationship is to Jesus. And here he does the same thing. So that by the end of the paragraph you don't know whether or not he's talking about servants needing to be obedient to their masters or if he's talking about something bigger in itself. He kind of marries the two ideas somehow and he kind of gets your, to kind of scratch your head as to how did we get to point B when we started out at point A. But this picture that he draws for us comes straight out of Isaiah 53. As you go down and you read the paragraph, he talks about, he starts going through various verses in that chapter. So for instance, in verse 22, he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And that's found in Isaiah 53, 9. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, which is found in Isaiah 53, 7. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the, him who judges justly. So Jesus, this is a very key verse here, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father despite what was going on, to him, on with him when he was all the, all the way up until the point he was crucified. This was the picture that the servants and that any other Christian who suffers unjustly is to see. That you entrust yourself to God when you're in such circumstances. It's not to just take a beating for the sake of taking a beating. We're following in the footsteps of Jesus when for our faith we're ridiculed or when we're in some parts of the world even beaten for it or killed. It's not, again, as I said, something that we take and we take lightly. And he does so because he knows, as it says in the verse, in verse 23, that he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now, if you think about it, God is the only, per is the only being that can judge perfectly in this existence of ours. 
We have judicial systems where we try to weigh out evidence and we talk about verdicts of guilty and not guilty. But we're flawed humans working in a flawed system trying to render justice to those who need it and deserve it. And sometimes we miss the mark. But God himself judges justly. The things in our life that happen that go against us isn't an accident. It's something in which day to day we're to entrust ourselves to God the Father, not only because of him judging justly, but because he did the exact same thing with his son. He let his son die. Now, of course, that was part of a plan to redeem us, but still, he let those injustices happen to his son in order to come out for a greater good. And he explains that in verse 24. He talks about Jesus himself bearing our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So here we have a picture of what's called imputation. We talk about imputation a lot in Protestant circles, the idea of being having Christ's righteousness imputed to us, reckoned to our account is the way it's usually defined. But here it's imputation in another sense. The sins that were, that were ours, the very nature that is ours, is pinned on Christ. He takes our sins, and by that he faces the wrath of God on the cross that we just celebrated two weeks ago. And that as he was on that tree, he paid a penalty that we could never pay ourselves. And that it didn't stop at that. That cr the cross of Christ didn't just result in his people being imputed with the righteousness of Christ and being rid of the guilt that we've carried for so long. But it's so that we might die to sin and that we live to righteousness. Paul speaks about something much the same in Romans chapter 6 when he talks about our baptism. He says when we're baptized, we're, we die to this life and then we, we rise to righteousness. And it's much the same thought here. As we leave an old master, the, the threads that used to bind us to sin have been cut. And instead we're to live to righteousness now. We're to live a life that reflects our new master. And then as he finishes out, he says, by his wounds you are healed, which is found in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 11. So here we find that Peter is taking that verse and putting it into context. Many people see in this idea of by his wounds being healed more of a physical healing, which in itself is true. You could say that even though we're not healed, maybe in this lifetime of every illness, we will finally, when we're risen, to be with Christ forever. But Peter's idea here is, is that we're, wound, we're healed by his wounds and that we're reconciled to God himself. Whereas before we had lived under the curse of death and separation from God, we've now been healed of that, are now under the righteous rule of God. And in verse 25, he says, you were straying at one time like lost sheep. 
which again is an allusion to Isaiah 53.6. He says, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And I believe some translations of the Bible will render overseer as bishop. So as in the other passages we've read today about the Lord being my shepherd and Jesus being the true shepherd. Again, we see Peter going back to that illustration of Jesus being our shepherd, being the one who oversees our souls, who guides us every day as we live for him. And even as we maybe turn the other direction, he always brings us back. This is the job of a shepherd, to keep us within the fold. And this is what Jesus does for us. So even though there is injustice in the world, even though we do face ridicule, we face all manners of discrimination, some greater than others, we have someone who not only judges justly, but who guides us into the way and the truth and the life. And this is who Jesus is. And we all know as time goes along, and I, I guess for those of us who are a little bit older, we see the Christian faith in this country especially being ridiculed more and more. Back in some places, I think the Southern Poverty Law Center even kind of had labeled some people who took a stand against gay marriage as being a hate group. And these are the types of things that are going to pop up as time goes along where more and more we face adversity, we face ridicule, we face discrimination because of who we believe and for who we choose to follow. But God tells us in 1 Peter that what applies to the servants also applies to us as his servants. That even though we may serve unjust people or may face unjust people who try to punish us or ridicule us for no reason, that we are to entrust ourselves to the bishop and overseer of our souls and to the only one who judges justly, who's God. As we go along in this week, think about when you see these types of discrimination, this type of adversity to the Christian faith, remember that God is still in control, he still loves us, and that he will see in the last day that justice is done perfectly. Amen.